Uh, well, I'm, I do see we have a few visitors this morning. I'm glad to see you all. And uh, we've been working on this book. I told the deacons this morning. Uh, we've been working on this work. I am a church member. We're on chapter five this week. We're going to spend two weeks on chapter five. If you would like a copy of the book and you're not, um, and you haven't read it before, even though you know maybe you're a visitor here today, maybe you're not coming back ever, especially after when I get done today, you may not want to come back. But uh, but still, I would encourage you to read that book for wherever you go to church because it's it's outstanding. It really helps us to think about what is required of us as a believer in Jesus Christ, and um, and what we need to do in our fellowships. So, I want to mention how great Dave. Um, not, no, I don't want to say it like that. I want to mention how great the service was last week. Dave, you did terrible. No, it wasn't the music that made it so special. It wasn't the message that Dave gave that made it so special. It wasn't even the prayer time afterwards that made it so special or the time of worship. But we had a very well-rounded service last week, and God's presence was uh, most certainly here among us. And what I really saw, if I could, if I could, had to put my finger on, even as I left, and I'm, I'm sorry, if you didn't, if you didn't hear it, um, I'm sure it's recorded, but the problem is, when you listen to it recorded, you won't get the, the sense of the presence that was here. It won't be the same. The pauses, you can't tell the motion and that kind of thing. But the familial care of people for one another, the familial love, the family-like love, that people showed towards one another, towards Dave, towards the pastors, um, in the in and just the time together, the fellowship beforehand, the fellowship after. Um, I know we don't we're we're bad not to start on time. It's mostly Jed's fault. I blame him, but we're bad not to end on time. That's mostly my fault. I blame that on me. <laughs> but I mean we're, <laughs> we're but what we try to do is we've seen this model. I mean a number of us that have been overseas have seen this model of not being so tied to the clock that you can't let the spirit move or you can't let emotion move. And so we try as people are talking to one another and encouraging one another and loving on one another and whatever, arguing with one another, whatever. Well, we try to, we try to um, encourage that. And last week we saw a great example of that. And I would pray that in the future that our, our services would be more common like that. I'm telling you, the service that you saw last week was unusual. You don't see that a lot in the U.S. You see it some overseas, but you don't see that kind of care for one another in the churches here. Maybe it's because the churches are, are a lot larger. They tend to be the ones that are more, um, uh, I don't know, what's the word, productive, seem to be larger churches, and they just don't have the ability to have that closer family kind of thing. But that was a really special uh, service last week. And, and um, Dave, we do love you, man, and we're looking forward to this this time. We're going to have an ordination for Dave coming up here in December when he graduates, and we're going to look at his grade card. We're going to post it so everybody can see his grades for the year and uh, see if he meets the standard. But, well, they say D's get degrees. So all he's got to do is, all I got to do is pass Dave, and we're, we're with you, man. But we do want to have a time of ordination and celebration of that and the work that he's put into that. And so, anyway, from there we go. So we read 2 Timothy 3.16 this morning. All scripture is God-breathed, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be mature thoroughly equipped, fully prepared for every good work. That is one of the stone-cold killer verses of the Bible. The preparation of God's word, that it came from his mouth, that it's put there for man to be completely mature and completely prepared for any work that God would set up before him. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by truth. Thy word is truth. And then in, uh, in there in 1 Corinthians it says, All scripture is given to us as an example 
and it's an example for us to live by. An example we can go back and say, note to self, don't do that. Note to self, do that. Worship God this way. Revere his presence. Seek his face. Or quit complaining against him. Quit grumbling against him. Quit running from him. Um, so in these small, relatively small pieces of scripture, though I cherry-picked them out of the Bible, the Bible's full of those. Psalm 119 is 150-some-odd verses of nothing but how good God's word is, how critical it is for the individual person to be developed into the man and woman that God uses, thoroughly mature for every good work, uh, mature, thoroughly furnished. I went to this, um, uh, well, we just helped Tony move out. His house was unthoroughly furnished. They moved everything out. It's an empty box. If you go in there, and I don't care how beautiful the house is, if there's no furniture in there, it's not that comfortable to stay in. Then we went to Whitney's mama's house, and, man, he had these big plush, puffy couches. You could throw a kid on the couch from 10 feet away, and it's like landing on a pillow. I mean, just poof, which I tried. But, uh, I mean, it's beautiful. It was, it was thoroughly equipped for every good work. We want to have a big family meal there? Ready. You want to sit on the couch, take a nap, watch TV? Ready. Big, fluffy bed? It's ready. It's thoroughly furnished for every good work. Anything that you want to accomplish there. The body of Christ is to be that way, thoroughly furnished for every good work. So if I look at those words, the scriptures, if I, if I read God's word and it tells me that all scripture is God-breathed, that means it's the very essence of God and it's poured out onto man. Man hears it, he writes it down, and in some cases, like the first three chapters of Genesis, God wrote it down and passed it on to whoever the next man was, Adam. It's come from God to man, man writes it down. God tells us, Christ tells us that all scripture is true. And it's verifiably true. If that's the case, and it's given as an example for me to do stuff, why do I question it and attempt to live in a way counter to what God's word says? So the chapter, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It could be a little painful. We may not have as many hugs and high fives after today as we did last week. I hope we do. I hope we do. They may not be to me. It may be you guys, you know, sharpening your pitchforks out there or whatever, but you... Just, just hear me out. I told the husbands beforehand, I'm like, just, you know, keep your wives. Talk them off the cliff, you know. They'll be okay, I promise. Just hear what I'm saying and hear the heart of what I'm saying, okay? Don't, don't uh, attribute negative things to me that's from God's word, okay? So our, our chapter study this week is called, I Will Lead My Family to Be a Healthy Church Member. It's really interesting how God works in my life. I can't speak for your life. I can only speak for my life. But I think in general, if men keep their eyes open and are looking to the master creator, the God of all creation, if we look to him and we're looking for his direction in our life, how he works in us, we can see that he positions different people, you know, elements of time, events, things, political events, public events, different personalities. We hear different preaching. We hear different music. And somehow with me, God ties it all together into what he wants me to speak on Sunday. And I do study, I spend a lot of time in this, I spend all day on this, you can verify that with my wife, that I spent a majority of the day, except for about two hours, I had to go do things for a couple hours in the middle of the day. But I mean, I spent a legitimate eight to ten hours on this yesterday, not to mention other time during the week, the, the hour or two I spend each day in reading and studying, and listening, and observing, and talking to people. I did some marriage counseling the last couple weeks um, with a number of couples, uh, um, and just things that I heard and, and the words that kept coming that I kept hearing was God's word is truth It can be trusted 
um, uh, there's a seeming weakness in the body of Christ. I heard this more than once. There's a weakness in the body of Christ, and it's the families within the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to work on this morning. So it's what the families look like within the body of Christ. I was reading, uh, I read it to the guys this morning, and uh, they all looked at me with those, what are you talking about, eyes? So I'm going to tell it to you again. I'll try and trim it down a little bit. But it was in Philemon 1. It's only one chapter in Philemon. It's really short. And the second verse, it says, it talks about these three people, Philemon, Appius, or something, Aphia, and Archelaus. And they're, the three of these people are in the home church. It doesn't say the home church. It says the church in your home. The church in your home. And I wonder if the issue of the church of the United States of America, of the Western world, of the uh, materialistic, secular world that it's grown and developed into, I wonder if the home church is a thing that exists anymore. I'm not talking about a home church like, like uh, Pete and Tracy have a, a, me a meeting Sunday nights where a group of people come and they meet together. While that is the called out, the ecclesia, that's a group of people meeting together like a It's not the home church. The home church is Dave, Sarah, and the three amigos. It's Josh Miller and his amigos. It's, it's this family and their kids. It's that family. The home church. It's the foundational piece that gives the power to the church that we exist in as a body of believers. What the home church looks like has a direct impact on what the church church looks like. Just so you know, before I go much further, I got to tell you that this morning before I left, I talked to Renetta. I said, okay, Renetta, here's what I'm going to cover today. And she was like, say this, don't say that. But one thing she did point out was, uh, uh, don't do that, don't do that, um, was that, um, that uh, and I'll look at it here in just a second, I'll show it to you in scripture, but is that the home church, the church home, should be a team. God developed a team. The husband and wife is the key team members. It's uh, Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. It's the two most critical creatures in the home is the parents. I know some parents, maybe there's some one-parent homes here, but, but for the most part, the husband and wife, as God designed it, is the team captains that are running the show, and they work together to develop the home. So we're going to look at this and, and, um, and try to develop it. I try to be as least offensive as possible, but part of what the battle is today is I'm not just battling against you in your spirit and God's word, but we're battling the culture that you have heard for your entire life and you believe it to be true. And so I want to direct your eyes to God's word and I want you to look at that. Let's go to Genesis. That's where we're going to be. Genesis 1. So for a ship to sail, it's got to have a solid hull. You tear out the hull, uh, boat ain't going on the water. We, uh, we were driving through Salina the other day and, and there was this really nice, probably probably new, maybe $50,000, $60,000 ski boat. And the entire side of this thing was like a, what's the big one? Like a Malibu, like a real fancy one. I'm not a, I'm not a boat guy, but whatever. I was on a boat once, went to the Philippines on that thing. <laughs> but anyway, the whole side of the boat was torn out from, I'm talking an eight-foot hole this tall. You ain't getting in that boat and going skiing. The whole side of the boat was gone. Um, it could have been fifty grand all it wanted, but it's a worthless piece of fiberglass right now sitting there because the hull's not stable. For the home to be stable, uh, uh, for any house to be stable, it has to have a good foundation. We go to Peru and they, and they were, 
Oh, we went to Africa, and they were taking and digging this ditch, and then they were just packing gravel in the ditch, and then they were building mud bricks on top of this gravel. That's not a firm foundation. You get a good rain, and the mud walls are going down, the, the foundation's ripping out. It's just there's nothing to it. And for the body of Christ, for the church, this group that meets here, or any group that meets in any church, or the group of churches that makes up believers, all believers, everywhere, the foundation has to be stable. It has to be built on the rock, the Bible says, that is higher than man. It says higher than I, but it's built on the rock that's higher than man. It has to be on something stable. So are the bodies that are inside, are the different little church homes that are inside the body of Christ, if they're not built on the rock that is higher than man, then the church itself is going to be unstable because the components of the church are unstable. So, do we have a church right now in the world, do we have a church at Plank Row Harvest, do you have a church in your home, mom, dad, and ever how many kids you got, that's stable enough that it's worthy to be passed on to the next generation? Or does it need to be strengthened first and built up on the rock? Genesis 1, 26 through 31, I'm going to read that to you first. Let's see where the home comes from. We're going to look at it 30,000 feet, then we're going to zoom in like six feet, zoom in real fast, zoop, look at it from about six feet away, then we're going to pull back out a little bit and look at the family as a whole. From 30,000 feet is Genesis 1, 26 to 31. I'm going to back up one more time. I'm going to tell you this. If you don't believe that God's word is truth, if you don't believe that all, God's, all scripture is God-breathed, then you need to get that right in your mind first. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and spirit, the joints of the marrow, and it's a critic of thoughts and intentions of men's hearts. And it needs to be that way. And if it's not in your life, then you need to evaluate your life. And you need to measure your life. And you need to see that you've put, you're building your foundation on the wrong thing. You're not building it on the rock. So we're going to the rock and seeing what the rock says. Verse 26, 126. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. So to you it shall be for food, and to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food. And so it was. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. The evening and the morning were the sixth day. And I've told you before, you've heard here before, maybe I told you, maybe Dave told you, maybe Jed did. But God created the heavens and the earth. And of every other aspect of the heavens of the earth that he created, he looked at it and said, it is good. But when he created man and he brought woman to him, he said it was very good. It's the only time in the creation story that we see God give this gold star A++ you know, appointment to something he created. I was, um, I'm going to brag on myself a second, just to make a point. That sign out there, 
I spent a lot of time on that sign, put that stone on there, put the thing on there, built it, whatever. And I take a lot of personal pride in looking at that sign. If you didn't work on the sign, you don't understand what it took to build the sign. You know, uh, me and Lynn went out there. He helped me lay the block and everything. Actually, he laid the block and he like brushed me aside. Like I was trying to help him. He's like, get off. But anyway, he laid the block. I put stone on it. But putting the, the, putting the wood up, putting the thing up, and then, you know, different people working on it. But the total package of the sign, whether you like it or not, is very appealing to my eye. And not only that, I can go look at it and go, I did that. It looks really good. I like it. And so for any craftsman to look at the thing that they produced and have pride in it is not a negative thing. In fact, the Bible says that a man who is good at his labors will stand before kings and not be ashamed. So to know that you did a good job on something, you can go look at it and like, man, that looks really good. I'm, I'm proud of myself. A house you built, you know, a car you rebuilt, an engine you did. Uh, whatever you mow the grass and you like how you left the lines in it whatever whatever thing that you did that you take pride in the finished result in is it's not a negative thing it's not pride as in where i i look down on someone else this is a different kind of thing this is knowing you did a good job and the end result came out well when god looks at the creation of husband of husband and wife of man and woman that he brought together in the garden he said that was very good and dale goes looks at the sign like that's very good God looked at man and woman and go, that's very good. That's the best I can do right there. Think about that before you handle your marriages as lightly as you do. God looked at it and said it was very good. So the first thing God did was he created man in his own image. He blessed them and he gave them some direction. If you're a writer downer kind of person, write this down. This is what he told them to do. He said, be fruitful. He said, multiply. He said, fill the earth and take dominion over it. And God saw everything he made and it was very good. He blessed them. So that's the points. Be fruitful, multiply, number two. Fill the earth, number three. Subdue it or have dominion over it. Go to Genesis 2, verse 7. So God commanded man... What did he command him, the man that he created to do? He commanded him to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion. In the second point here, we'll see Genesis 2-7. We see the, the six-foot view. You've got to get close to the man because he's forming man with his hands. He's doing a physical thing in the formation of man. 2-7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So where does life come from? comes from God, the creator, the one that gives power and ability to your mortal flesh and says you are capable of doing these things. He gives you spiritual gifts, he gives you abilities, intelligence, mental capacity, eyesight, hearing, taste, and so on. And all those things, he formed himself and he breathed his life into man and man became a living being. But what does that make man in comparison to God? makes him less than God. It makes God in control over man, right? If he has the power to breathe into you and you become a living being, that means he has a power to vacuum your breath out of you or not give you one more breath and you become a dead carcass. So where does life come from? It comes from God. God creates man to do things. He gives life to man. Look at 2.18. The Lord God says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper 
comparable to him. So out of the ground, the Lord created everything. Uh, let me see. Uh, verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be cleaved or joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. A lot of stuff going on right here. You say, because you went to high school in Cumberland County, that there's no way that God took a man made of dirt, laid him down, opened his side, took a woman out of it, and presented it back to a man. And I'm telling you, I don't understand all there is to know about science, but God tells us that he formed man and that he formed woman. And that's all I can tell you about that. But I'm going to tell you that you either take all of scriptures as God breathed, or you can't take any of it. It's all true or none of it's true. And if it's true, then we need to abide by it. And he made a position thing here. I was telling Jed this morning. I never really noticed this before. And the word comparable, I think I've showed you this before. This is comparable. My hands look the same, but they're actually opposite. But when they put them together, you know, it's one hand. Magic. Anyway, <laughs> it's, just, it's comparable. Looks the same, not the same. They complement one another. What I thought was interesting here is this is very different. This is before the fall, and then we have after the fall. What we have before the fall is we have a man complete in God's image. I've got to spend a second on this because this is, this is real stuff. We have a man complete in God's image. That means he has an emotional side, a critical side. He has the way that the woman thinks. He has the way that the man thinks. He has the, the man's strength, and he has the woman's tenderness. He has it all in one form then he lays man down and removes from him some aspect that makes him from complete to incomplete and he produces a woman with it okay and then this is the magic part this is the great mystery the bible called he puts them back together and it says they become one flesh and they become complete um psalm 18 19 i believe proverbs 18 19 talks about um, a man who spends too much time, a man who spends too much time alone, um, I'll paraphrase, gets off track on his thinking. His, his thinking is corrupted. The Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. You, we call them, uh, what do we call them? Grouchy old misers? What do we call old men that live by themselves? Huh? Bachelors? They end up a little crazy. If you ever met a person, a guy especially, that's lived their whole life alone, they get real quirky. Think about people you know that are men that have never had a spouse. They get real quirky. Somehow women do better alone than men do. I, don't, I can't explain why that is, but uh, I've talked to Renette about that before, and she agrees, so therefore it must be true. <laughs> but they do seem to do better, especially if they've been married before and they become widows. They can, they can be developed widows, be very, very functional in society, but guys that are bachelors, they have never been married, they just can't figure it out for some reason. It's not good for man to be alone. God removes a part of the man, brings that part back to him, and now they are created in the image of God. Man and woman, he created them, and they're in the image of God. No longer man, but man and woman as one flesh. It's a key thing. So who made woman? God did. What was God's design for her? This is a question we need to ask ourselves. What was, the God's, what was God's design for man? 
God's design for man was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion. What was God's purpose for woman? To be comparable to the man. Not comparable, I'm sorry. Uh, corresponding, yeah, comparable. To make the man one flesh. To make the man complete. The woman completes the man. The woman by herself is an incomplete person. The man by himself in the marriage is an incomplete person. But when you bring them together and become one flesh, you have a complete person, as God calls it, in the image of God. Created for the purpose that God created us for. God was building a team. And then the fall happens. And something happens in the fall that affects everything that we do and everything that we think and always has, you just don't believe it. But because of the fall, God creates a way for man and woman to still be one flesh and to accomplish his mission. But on top of that, he lays a curse. The curse was not there before. Before, they were truly one flesh. They had, he takes the emotional side out of man and gives it to woman. He separates the critical side, the way a man thinks, and leaves it with man. And then when he brings them back together, they get the, in, in the correct relationship, it's the right melding where we get the, what do they call it, the, the sixth sense that a woman has? Uh, isn't that what they call it? Women's, insu women's intuition, yeah. Where they have this, this thing that guys don't catch. For some reason, we don't catch it. It's something that's going on in the way that they process. We don't catch But if the man and the woman are one flesh, then you get to take advantage of the woman's intuition you get to take advantage of the men's strength. You get to take advantage of the men's critical view of things. You get to take advantage of the woman's emotional view of things, uh, uh, her tenderness, her care. For I mean, if it was up to men and we had children, there'd be a lot of hungry kids living out there. We'd be, I mean, just out of luck, you know. But God put the woman, made her that way for a purpose, bringing them together. It was made that way for a purpose. But then comes the fall. There's still one flesh. But there's a change after the fall that I caught that I never caught before because God puts an authority structure in the mix that was not there before. And when you hear these words, a lot of ladies nowadays, we hear this, they're like, that is not true. But I'm just reading you out of the book, and I'm going to tell you, this is the truth. Before, in one flesh, when we have the comparable mindset and we're working together as a team, we no longer have that. Now we have a curse laid on us by God. It's part of turning our back on God but it can be overcome. Uh, Genesis 3.16. It says, To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. It's not the same word. I used to think when I was a kid, you know, they were talking about, you know, just a, additional pain in childbirth. But this is an emotional thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to amplify this aspect of a woman's, uh, what, a processing function of her mind so that she's going to feel sorrow more deeply than a man will. Think about relationships and think about women and men and if that's not true. And pain in your conception, in pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That wasn't there in the first place. That's here in the second place. So now we have a, we have a very delicate situation. Because if we have a controlling man, a cruel man, he can dominate a woman and cripple her emotionally physically mentally if we have a dominating woman we have the same problem this word desire it's, a, it's kind of a strange word it sounds like her desire shall be to follow him around and be his pet but that's not the case it's that's the same word that is in um talking about cain 
and where he sinned against uh, his brother and killed him. And the Lord says to Cain, why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door in its desire for you, but it should rule over you. Its desire is for you. Its desire is to consume you is what it means. Its desire, that word desire is a control word. The woman shall desire to control her husband. I was driving the car the other day. You have to, if you've ridden with me, you know I'm a terrible driver. And every now and then, Keith gets a little nervous over there in the passenger seat, often. And then he'll like reach towards the steering wheel. <laughs> like, we're about to hit the mailboxes. You know, whatever. Zach's seen it. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Just, you see me coming, just get all the way over and you'll be fine. But can't be but one driver. You can't be but one driver in a car. In so many homes, we have multiple people trying to drive, and they end up wrecking the car. Keith just holds on to the stuff and shrinks down in the seat, hoping we don't hit a pole or something. But, th but that's the issue, is that in this case, God says, no longer can we have these people, I mean, uh, however the relationship was between man and woman, their minds must have just been completely in tune with one another and and it just uh, uh, you know they're reading each other's minds you see that a lot with older couples that have had long long marriages i mean they complete one another's sentences and that kind of thing they have that in tune thing going but in a lot of younger couples where you're trill, still trying to figure out who's in charge of what you don't have that you have a lot of conflict where this is my realm this is my realm don't tell me what to do no you stop telling me what to do and whatever gets out of control so to the woman it's a terrible thing. Her desire shall be to have more control in the relationship than she does. But the disciplined part is he shall rule over you. So if I had to back up and ask the question, so who created man? God did. Who assigned man jobs? God did. Who created woman? God did. What was her purpose? To become one flesh with the man. After the fall... Who changed the, the direction there and said that the woman would have to f struggle in this authority structure, this hierarchy, that wasn't there before? God did. What does the world say, though? The world tells us a different story. And it causes great harm in many relationships. And I, I got to say, I, I asked one, Renetta, she said that about being a good team, or being a team. I was like, well, are we a good team? And she, I was like, you know, rate it. Are we a, a bronze winner? You know, a silver winner? You know, she didn't go for any of those. So we're somewhere between bronze and less. But we are a good team. We, <laughs> we've learned to work things out as time has gone on. And, uh, and, and just like any couple in, in young marriage, we had, our, we had our problems for sure. And it was as much my fault as anyone's fault because I had never seen a good marriage. I, my parents weren't in a good marriage. Um, my dad was a controller. He was a real power person, very dominating to my mother and to my sister and I. And, uh, and my mother was um, just very uh, emotionally weak person, was easily pushed around. And she actually is married to another man that's very similar to my father, tragically. And so that's like what not to do. But the other, on the other hand, you have so many relationships where the woman is in the dominant position and the man ends up getting just driven into the ground. And that's not right either. God called us to be one flesh and the encouragement of one another, one team, and working as a team. So the sin that God injected into the world, into the one flesh of marriage, will cause a, a marital struggle between husbands and wives, 
if they're not pulled under that power of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a thing, I, it's really been working on me for a long time. I really want to spend some time to break that down with you guys one day, is that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in the, in the, the linchpin there is self-control. We have no self-control in our culture, thus we get mad about stuff and burn the city down. That's a lack of self-control. We have a lack of self-control often in our emotions. I'm upset at you, therefore I can vent 100% of what I feel on you right now until I feel better about myself, and you're just supposed to take it. I have no self-control in how much I eat or how much I drink or what I do with my spare time or whether or not I can turn YouTube off or Facebook or any other thing. I have no self-control. And I have no self-control in my marriage either. I'm just going to do what I want to do, and this person does what they want to do, and what we don't have is one flesh anymore. And when we don't have one flesh, then we have a weakness in the, in the home church that becomes demonstrated in the larger church. And it's very damaging, very uh, dangerous. Um, a lot of people, they have the very best intentions with their daughters. I had girls that played, you know, Kaylee played sports and... Um, and you're like, and you tell them, oh, you know, oh, she's, you know, people say things like, she's strong as a horse, you know, she's strong as a man, she's, she, um, uh, you know, girl power, whatever, girls can do anything a man can do, don't ever let a man, uh, don't ever let a man take care of you and these kind of things. And in a sense, you mean well for your daughter, you're thinking about her not having to rely on an unreliable person, but in another sense, you're doing them great harm because that is not God's plan for a healthy marriage. And before you get mad at me for saying that or pointing out, maybe you've said those things. If you have, you know, we, we all fall short of the glory of God. But in that, it's not too late. It's never too late for reconciliation, for repentance, and things like that. But we've got to go to the source, go to the foundation, God's Word, and see what His Word tells us the ideal marriage, what it looks like, the ideal relationships, what, it, what they look like. We can find it. We can find it in the Old Testament. We can find it in the New Testament. But we have to get this part right. Um, you know, even saying these things, I was telling Jed this morning, even though they're completely true, if I read God's Word, what it says, without adding anything to it, I can see that it's true, that God presented a hierarchy, but that there's a, a, a design there where the man cares for the woman above his own life, and that the woman is under his care and even saying that it it's kind of nerve-wracking especially because everybody there's nobody laughing right now they're all just staring at you you know sharpening their blade or whatever but even saying that because our culture has so destroyed marriages and so flip-flopped what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman that it's almost like blasphemous to say these things that are true by god's word and um like I said, Jed's going to escort me to my car after this and, you know, whatever. But, um, but to hear that is, is tough to hear because we've heard our whole lives something else. And it's not true. And I'm telling you what you're seeing right now is the end result of that. Now you've seen, by this push for extreme feminism, you've seen now where men can identify as women and therefore take over in their sports. That's the far end of it. It seems ridiculous, but that's the far end of that. Anyway, so if we look at Genesis by itself, we can see that men and women both have, both have deviated drastically from the foundation that God presented for us in his word. Uh, the farther away we get, the more unhappy we have become, the more unsatisfied we are with our lives. And I've told people, I go to Peru, I see these people in these truly traditional families that have nothing, and they are happy as can be. The man is happy, 
the woman is happy. And it couldn't be more traditional. Um, it's Fred Flintstone traditional. The woman's at home. She gets up in the morning. She kills the duck. She cooks the duck. She works like a dog. She washes the clothes. She does all these things. The guy goes and works in his, in his arena, wherever that is. And when they get all done, uh, at the end of the day, somehow they're both happy. They're both tired. They've both worked. They've both, you know, worked on developing children. They've both worked in the home. They've both cared for one another. And they're both reading the word together. They're both, you know, the ones that I've experienced with that seem to be the happiest, that are believers, they're both in the word together. They're not kind of kicking against that. Somehow it works when we are obedient to God's word. But anyway, so how do we get ourselves on the same team? If I went back to that list for men, by the way, this is part one of two. Um, the first thing it said is become one flesh. The very first command there was to become one flesh. The man, God brought the woman back to man. It says they were naked and unashamed, but if it was just the two of you in the whole world, what would it matter? And they came together and they became one flesh. They shared everything from everything to from the most intimate to the most distant in one flesh, in one mindset. And they completed one another. They helped each other to reason things out, to think about things, to develop things. You know, uh, Abraham's, or I mean Abraham, Adam's got to name all these animals. And she's like, hey, you should call that one, you know, chicken or whatever. And she helps him, you know, in whatever way he was to work in the garden. She's with him, helping him, developing him. He's developing her. I, ha I would have to say, as I said that right now, developing, that's what we got to be looking for in a spouse. You younger people, you young fellows right here, Look for someone that's going to help develop you. I mean, we, we look at the girls when, I, when you're young. The guys look at the girls because they're cute. If that girl would go out with me, she's really cute. But if you went out with them one time and she only thought about herself and her cuteness, run away. Because she's not worried about developing you. And at the same time, your mindset's probably not right because you're not thinking about developing her. But if you can get that correct mindset of, developing one another in the long run you're going to have a great relationship hmm. become one flesh complete one another what does it take what are you keeping from your spouse in your own home what are you keeping from your spouse that would help develop them are you keeping something um you know intimate from them that would help develop them are you keeping secrets from them that would help them to develop you what's keeping you from becoming one flesh the next thing was be fruitful. And this is a hard thing to talk about. My wife and I um, are as big in sin as this as, as anyone else. But uh, the more I read God's word, the more I realize that I don't really think that it's up to us to decide how many children we have. He told us to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And in turn, we have abortions, we have birth control, we have family planning, so on. And so we, we sinned against God in that, and there's nothing, there's nothing I can do about it at this point. But in thinking about that, how do we encourage our children that come behind us to think about God's word more correctly so that they don't do things that we did do? The next thing says, fill the earth. And what we tend to do is, is what got them in great trouble at the Tower of Babel is we tend to stay together. We, you know, we got our husband, and we got our wife, and we got our kids, and we're going to raise them up, we're going to keep them right here, we're going to build houses beside our houses. He says, fill the earth. And by filling the earth, what's supposed to be going on is we're supposed to be developing our children, our church children, into believers 
that are adamant about the Word of God and about evangelism and discipleship, and they're to go out. Remember that one about the arrows and the faithful man? You shoot an arrow. You don't keep it in the quiver. It's no good in the quiver. You shoot it out there. So in trying to keep our children close to us, we limit, their, we limit our ability as we disciple our children. We limit our ability for our children to go develop other people with the gospel. If we got our home church thing going right, our children should be developed into good believers. They should be out making other believers, other disciples, and it should keep going. It's got to fill the earth. And the last thing was take dominion over the earth, subdue the earth. And um, one of the best things I ever heard about, like, drug abuse was, and this guy was talking about, well, marijuana, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's just from the earth or whatever. Okay, fine. If you want to go that way, does it dominate you or do you dominate it? Because every person that I've ever seen that's really had an issue with, with that, per se, or alcohol, alcohol comes from the earth, right? We make some corn, we squish it down, we add some sugar, we make out. And then it controls people. Do you have dominion over it or does it have dominion over you? Or wine or pornography or whatever. Or even what we're talking about now, you know, with the climate change and all that, not to get political, but just uh, God told us to take the earth, see what's in it, see that his glory is in it, and there's all kinds of things hidden in it. And you can dig the gold up and you can make money out of it or you can make electronic parts out of it. Or you can dig the oil up and you can make tires out of it and you can make cars run on it. Or you can dig the steel up and you can make cars and, and houses and frames and structures. You can dig the, cut the wood and build the buildings and so on. It's there for us to take dominion over. We need to be wise with it, not just destroy it. But take dominion over it. Who has dominion over who? Does the earth have dominion over us? It does. We stay in our houses and we're fearful to cut a tree. You know, we have... Uh, POAs that say you've got to get permission to cut that tree bud that's a different story but you, you really understand what I'm saying that that we allow the earth to take dominion over us so all these things that God told us to do no wonder we can't get the hierarchy right we've goofed up on all that stuff it was interesting listening to those guys pray for real they're listing this list of sin and I'm just like I feel like a dog because our country's doing exactly the same stuff God's creation of man and woman has huge implications for the growth of his kingdom. I want you to look. This is the last verse we'll really go look at. It's Numbers. It's in Numbers chapter 21. So in, the, in number, if you read Numbers, it's this roller coaster of goof-ups. Like God does this thing, brings them some water, brings them some, you know, whatever. They get it, they start complaining. Then he kills a bunch of them. Then they're like, oh, sorry about that. And then uh, he gives them some food. And then they start complaining. And then he kills a bunch of them. Whoops, uh, my bad. Uh, then he, you know, uh, Kohath or whatever, and his tents, you know, and uh, God, the earth swallows him up because he, he rises up against the Lord's anointed. And God kills a bunch of them, 250 in that lick, and then another like 20,000 right behind it. So it's this up and down thing, you know, um, their, their rebellion to go into the, the cities and to take what God had given them. But then in chapter 21, this, it's so crazy, it's so us. We've never changed. Man has never changed. So in, in chapter 21, uh, in verse 4, you see that, um, that the people are again complaining against God. And he puts another just terrible plague of serpents on them, and they're biting them. And I always think of you, Tracy, when I think of snakes. But uh, she hates 
snakes. So if you ever want to have fun, throw a snake on her. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. And so this constant complaining, negativity, doing your own thing, and they end up disciplined by God. But then in verse 17 and 18, you have this verse. They get disciplined by God, they're restored to God, and they sing this song. All, then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, all you who sing it. The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. It's this up and down thing. And it's just, God's people, God gives his people free will. He gives every one of these believers that sit in this room today free will. We have the option to believe in him or to not believe in him. We have the option to follow him daily, pick up our cross daily and follow him or not. And in general, we choose not to. And uh, this on-again, off-again nature of God's people leaves the nations around. This is the trick. It leaves the nations around God's people confused, in a sense, about who God is. Is he great and greatly to be praised like we say he is? Or is he unjust and untrustworthy, and we should just fear him and reject him? He can't be both. Um, And so we as believers in the church, we as fathers in the home, mothers in the home, family, home churches, family, small home churches. We should be so different. We should be more aware of the witness that we have that the world sees outside of our home. We're so selfish. We only think about the impact of that one moment when that person says something that offends us or gets on our nerves or whatever. We, we can't get beyond that. We're so uh, petulant and petty that we just, we, this, the, the thing that the person does and it gets on our last nerve and we start telling about it and, we, and you know, we're yelling loud enough that the neighbors can hear. But the neighbors tragically know that you go to church. And so they're saying, that's the relationship of people that go to church. It's just like our relationship. Why would I want their relationship or whatever relationship they're talking about if their relationship is exactly like my relationship? So the way that we handle the the ups and downs and the disappointments and the disagreements that we have in our marriages can have a huge impact on those around that are witnessing us. And the opposite side of that is if we're not handling that well, if, if it is true that Christians, I don't think it's exactly the same rate, but they say that Christians divorce at about the same rate as the world. If that's the case, well, then no wonder people don't want to become a part of the body of Christ. So the, the marriages of Christians are, are observed by the world, and they're used. I mean, this guy that, that I work with a lot, he's, he's not, he says he's a believer, but I doubt that he is. But he's always waiting for you to goof up. Oh, yeah, you're supposed to be a preacher. Or back when I was a deacon. Oh, you're a deacon. Oh, that's what deacons are like? Well, that's what our deacons are like. <laughs> yeah. But he's, the world is waiting for you to mess up. It's the whisperer, the, the, the demonic realm, the supernatural that sits and whispers in people's ears and says, it's not real. Because if it was real, they wouldn't look like you look. They ain't got nothing you ain't got. Just, you know, live life and party or whatever. We've got to be so much more careful than we have been in the past. For one, in preparing our children, your kids are being bombarded in the schools. They're being bombarded on social media and so on. They've been bombarded and all this stuff, telling them that the world has a better way and it's not true. But if you're not having home church in your home, 
they see no difference in your home than they saw at school and school kids' home. And tragically, when Christians divorce one another, then they have no, no whatever, realm of orientation whatsoever after that because my parents got divorced just like these people out here got divorced. What, what's the difference? So how does that really kind of relate to our book? I think Jed said this morning, um, you know, what would the body look like if in every family both parents completely fulfilled their roles? If, if I woke up daily and thought to myself, how can I serve my wife? If my wife woke up daily and said, how do I serve my husband? If the kids woke up daily and said, how can I best obey and serve my parents? The rebellion that we're talking about that came from the garden, it's in every member of the family. It's not just the wife not being uh, under her husband. It's the husband not being under Christ, the wife not being under the husband, and the kids being rebellious to the parents. And nobody's fulfilling their role in the circle. And I was, I was reading that. I, I drew it out as a picture, but I'll give it to you as a word picture. Imagine God the Father... These are his hands. These are what they look like. And he's lowering the crown, which is Christ, on the head of the father in the home. And then the wife's the neck. Because the neck, wherever the neck turns, that's where the head goes, right? So the control of the family, it starts with God the father placing Christ over the father in the home. Then the father fulfilling his role correctly. Then the wife fulfilling her role correctly. And then the children being obedient in their role. And we're a long way from that. But we can fix it. It can be fixed. Uh, in talking to people that I've done marriage counseling with, I always got to go back to the same thing. For you that I've talked to, you've all heard it. You're going to hear it again right now. All habits, um, we'll, we'll take an easy one like biting your fingernails. Or with Parker, picking your nose, whatever. No, I'm joking. I'm joking, Parker. I'm joking. Parker's going to be like, I'll be waiting for you in the parking lot too. <laughs> no. Any habit comes on over time on a person. They don't realize that they've gotten into this trend. You're watching one scary movie and you're like, and before long you look like a typewriter chawing them off, right? Well, in marriages, that's how it works. There's the the lead up to the honeymoon the honeymoon and it's all you know the stars and the little whatever and then after from there on the bad habits are just in place and it starts with the man asking the woman you know well what do you think honey and she's going well what do you think and nobody's taking control and nobody's driving the car both people trying to steer from from and it's just not working and then we get into these arguments that over time blow up and blow up and we find out the same triggers that we're always going to use yeah i know he's going to mention this but i'm going to talk about his mother because that always gets him down or whatever whatever the weapon is and we continually use it to shoot the other person and shoot the other person and shoot the other person so to change a habit takes concerted self-discipline and control it takes great control of your tongue and it's hard to do because you just like biting your fingernails Every time you get in whatever stressful situation, you bite your fingernails. Um, with one of our kids, she was so bad about biting her fingernails, we started putting gloves on her. Or no, sucking her thumb was what it was, sucking her thumb. And so we started putting gloves on her. Well, she just take the glove and zip tie it on. And she bite a hole in the glove. I mean, she wanted to suck her thumb. 
That's how we are with our, our flaws. We're so flawed that we, we, it's the only thing we know. The only way we know how to fight is, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. This is my time. I use my time how I want to use mine. I use yours. And there's no one flesh. If there was one flesh, it would be so painful for you to harm your spouse that you would stop doing it. If you're one flesh, that means that I've told them, if, if, see my finger? It's getting better. It's kind of black there. Badly maimed. But you know what I don't do to this finger? I don't keep hitting it. But when you're one flesh, whenever you try to strike the other person, you end up harming yourself. And you're like, well, I'll tell her what I think. You're just wearing yourself out. And you're like, well, I don't know why she don't change. Because you're the one sleeping on the couch, fool. That's why she don't change. Stop hitting yourself, trying to make her hurt. Woman, control your mouth. Stop harming him with your lips, trying to make him hurt. You're hurting yourself. Become one flesh. Become one flesh and consider the other person more higher than yourself. And what happens is the children see that and they begin to change. You become more unified in your front against the children. It's a war, man. I've been there. It's you two versus them. When you try to split up the one flesh, the kids know. And they attack, man. And they'll divide and weasel and connive and all that jazz that kids do. That's what they do. But your goal, ultimately, is to make them into future church members that God can use to proclaim the gospel to the nations after you're being eaten by worms. So, we've got to change. Men have given up on seeking to become one flesh. They'd rather do their own thing, take their time, focus on their business, focus on their sports, focus on their whatever. They're not looking to be one flesh. Women aren't looking to place themselves in that position where they can support their husband, build him up, develop him. Men aren't looking to develop their wives. They're just, we're just getting by. And what it's doing, it's harming the church as a whole. It's taken the authority of God's word out of the fellowship and it's demeaned it tragically so um anyway so it left the body of christ looking no different than the world and that's the tragedy so the body of christ will become most attractive and most desirable to the nations only when the members of the body of christ live as they were called by the father putting the crown of christ on the father the father god the father putting the crown of christ on man and us beginning to live that way loving obedient homes god-fearing homes church homes will make for a great home church if we can get the individual families to have excellent home churches in their home we can have an excellent church that people will desire to be a part of but if the families in the church are as broken and destroyed as the churches as the families outside the church then we have nothing to offer to the world second corinthians three seventeen says now the lord is the spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You know where the liberty comes? We saw, you know, I got freedom in Christ to do this and that. You know where the freedom comes from? By being obedient to his word. It's not by doing our own thing and trying to make it look like it connects to his word. It's by figuring out what his word says and applying it to our lives and then we have liberty. And what it does is it begins to reflect God's glory, just like Moses. Moses was in God's presence. His face shone like the sun to the intense 
stage that people looking at him had to ask him to cover his face because it was so shiny. That's what being set apart looks like. So the world sees God's reflection on us only if we're reflecting God. Only if our home church is truly a home church, growing in God's uh, word and God's grace. So that comes through obedience to his word. And like I said, this is part, part one of two, and we're going to talk about the, the foundational structure, the father, the mother, and the children next week, and how we can kind of work to develop them as a body. And like I said, I hope that what I told you today was useful to you. If nothing else, if I give you this tiny bit of marital advice, I see the same, uh, I've met the same couple 10 different times now. You think that your marriage problems within your home are different than everything, it's all the same. She wants to do this, I want to do this. You know, he's trying to tell me what to do and I don't want to do it. She's living her own life separate from mine and I don't like it. It's the same, it's the same problem over and over and i really i i will do my best to counsel you in marriage there's better people at it i promise you but i'm telling you if you come to me for marriage counseling we're going to go to god's word and you're going to hear very similar things but this is all i can tell you the first thing you need to do is you need to become one flesh the husband and wife have got to become one flesh i don't like him touching me get to liking it you've got to become one flesh You've got to become one mind, one flesh. And that's my note of encouragement at the end. So uh, break those habits. Speak to one another with loving, in loving ways, with loving hands. And um, become one flesh. I'm going to pray and then, we'll, uh, and then we'll have communion. Father, this morning, Lord, I, I ask for your, for your mercy on this fellowship. These are good people. I was in the back this morning looking at them, telling strong. These are good people, but we're, we're flawed people. Father, I pray that the conviction of your Holy Spirit would work on individual hearts here, Lord, and would change us into the image that you've called us to be. We're supposed to be like Christ, but we struggle to do it, Lord, because we're so selfish. We're so self-centered. Have mercy on us, Lord. I thank you for all the husbands and wives represented here today, Lord, all the families. I know that the fathers are here together with their families today because they want their children to know you. And I pray even further that their, their spouses would know you, that they would know you as they know one another, that they would know you to that extent, to the intimate emotional sense that they know each other, they would know you in that way. And that you would work through these families, Lord, and you would develop us as a body of believers, Lord. You would draw us closer to you as we seek to be closer to you. Father, forgive us for our sins as we sin against one another and the words that we say, the, the way we handle each other, the way we handle our thoughts and our emotions, Lord. Have mercy on us. Change us, Lord. Use us for your glory in whatever way you deem fit, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the, you just remain seated there. The deacons are going to get the, the meal together for us. While you're sitting there, it'd be a really good time to kind of, in your mind, kind of dwell on the things, the flaws of your, of your marriages or your relationships or relationships with your kids too. We'll talk about that next week some, but if there's something you need to pray about there and get that straight, now is the time to do that.
Church.